Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. As he tells it, my guest on the podcast today, Danny Wen Lewin, ended up in healthcare because the alternative was a job where he needed to cut his hair. In our conversation today, barbershops feature large in our assessment of where healthcare might solve our problems in the future. My guest on the podcast today is Danny Van Lewin. Danny, I'm delighted to welcome you to the show. I'm thrilled that you were able to find the time to talk to me about all things healthcare. That's where I want to start this conversation. Why did you get involved in healthcare? Well, I was at this point when I was, I think I was 18 or 19, and um, I had a choice between reading water meters and getting a job as a psychiatric nurse's aide. And the water meter paid more, but I had to cut my hair. And I didn't want to cut my hair. So I, I took a job as a psychiatric nurse's aide. And while I was there, they suggested I go to nursing school. That was my start in in healthcare. That's a fantastic start. But water meters are a lot less complicated and a lot easier to deal with than the whole business of healthcare. And I guess that's where I'm coming to this comment because you've stayed with that for many many years yeah what was it that kept you there well i love being a nurse i mean part about i like being part of people's lives uh, being a nurse is it's sort of legal to be nosy to, to spend some time with people in very important times of their lives and I really enjoyed that. And it also is a, it's a profession that you can do so many different things. And so I have leveraged being a nurse to work across the continuum of care, to be a direct care clinician, then a manager. Then, you know, I discovered organizations and I got into the health of organizations through quality management, you know, and then information technology. And so I was able to, I was able to follow my nose. And I mean, there's just, I mean, everybody's dealing with their health. And you can't be in it more than five minutes and not, and not realize that, oh my goodness, it could be so much better. And I could make a difference in a few individuals' lives as a direct care nurse. And then over my career, I I went to larger and larger populations. Until now, I'm I'm on the board of governors of something called the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, which is a federally funded organization that funds what's called comparative effectiveness research to the tune of billion dollars. And so my my reach has grown over the years, which 
it's kind of a hoop. I can see the attraction of being involved with people, being nosy about people, being there in their most vulnerable times. There's a great reward in that. A billion dollars is an awful lot of money to spend on research for sure. And here we are in 2022. We still haven't got it right. And in many ways, we're in fact going backwards. And the experience of many, many patients that you would have dealt with when you were 19 is far worse today than it was back then. You know, yes and no. You know, I, I feel completely schizophrenic about it. For example, I worked for four and a half years for Boston Children's Hospital, and I led their patient family experience initiative. And they did some, they provided some amazing care. Amazing. People's lives were improved immeasurably. What was very sad was they could have done so much more if they had been run better. So mostly my feelings about healthcare is it's disappointing. But that doesn't mean that there's moments of brilliance and compassion and it's what we have. And, you know, I mean, I could definitely be cynical, but I don't have that much. It's not a very fun place to live for me. I mean, I, it's the same with my personal life. I'm, you know, I'm a person with multiple sclerosis, which is a, a progressive illness. And the superpower, I, I have a couple of superpowers. One is that I can accept what is and then go from there. And the other is that I'm pathologically optimistic. So then I can, I can leverage that to have the best life I can have, which is a really fine life. So I try to, you know, I, I was just thinking about this the other day, and I was I gave a little talk, and, you know, I'm really more comfortable with lower expectations and exceeding them or promising less and over-delivering. You know, those are, I think that's sort of one of the things you said, you know, is that, you know, we, we have to think so small, but we do. And, and really, the brilliance that I see right now in healthcare is what communities are doing for themselves. Like when there are communities who have a problem that they pull together and there's a few people or many people who pull together to try to solve the problem in their backyard. And whether their backyard means a neighborhood or a town or it means a organization that they're part of, that's where differences are made. When I see that, that's brilliance. Brilliance. I mean, there's just so many, you know, communities are just 
do some really amazing work. And I'm not sure that it's generalizable, except for the fact that if you see it in front of you and you want to try to make a difference, like go for it. And you might, you just might. And, and like, that's cool. And I feel now that I'm old, that's enough. Like when I was young, I was so, so just, you know, often disillusioned and upset, but not so much. You're listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa. Your eyes lit up when you talked about the Boston Children's Hospital and the word you used was amazing. What does amazing look like? Well, amazing, what amazing looks like is that well, what my, my, my commitment to is to learn on the journey to best health. And whether best health is for a person or an organization or a community, it's learning. And it's trying stuff. And it's... And so where I light up is that here's a problem. What can we do? Let's try it. If it doesn't work, let's adjust. Let's try something else. Let's just keep going. Let's just keep trying. And I found that at least when it came to specialties at Boston Children's, you know, not so much people with complex problems where they were, you know, that needed to cross departments. It was less good. But but that's the story of life. People are best. Again, as I said, it's the, the, the positive side is that you can make a difference when you're narrow and local. But so many problems are complex. And we are not good at coordination. We are not good at coalitions, at partnerships. I mean, I don't mean we're not good. We're not as good. Those are challenging because they're challenging. How do people get expert at something? They get expert at something because they get narrow and narrower. And then they get expert at that narrow thing. But, you know, that's a, a double-edged sword. So I'm also a podcaster. And I have a podcast called Health Hats, the podcast. and what I, one of the things to say is I, I know a little bit about a lot and not a lot about that much. So the, the skill I have is that you know, having worn so many hats in healthcare, I'm a patient, I've been a caregiver, I've been I'm a nurse, I've been, I've been um, informatics, you know, I've led some electronic health record implementations. Now I'm involved with research. I've worn a lot of hats, but I can wear them all at once. And so I can put pieces together. That's my skill, putting pieces together and building bridges. And and I think that's what it takes to make a difference, to make a, a change. Moving a battleship a couple degrees is a lot of work. But how does that happen? I mean, it happens, you know, 
really, it, it's not like there's some major wonderful thing. Like, that's a myth. That's not what happens. It's, it's like a, a thousand little things. And probably 750 of them didn't work. But 250 do. Well, that's a lot. So it's persistence. So my feeling, like, these days, so, you know, you're catching me at this minute, and so if you had caught me a year ago, I might have had said something different. But I really think I'm going for several things. I'm going for focus on communities. I'm going for patients and caregivers and direct care clinicians being involved in a service or a product or a project from end to end. And end to end is before it starts. So that the, I mean, you're, you're a design guy. So, I mean, what is design? A design is like, who's it for? And if you don't have the people who it's for and in there, you know, already it's like, you're designing something that you think is going to be good for somebody else. I mean, it's like kind of crazy. I'm a two-legged cisgender old white man of privilege. And I wear a lot of hats. People can check off a lot of boxes when they include me on their team. So I get to sit, sit at a lot of seats. But I'm still only one person who's an old white man of privilege. And so the the key is... Building the, the capacity and the, the interest and the willingness and the funding to include the end user. I mean, so this must be your language. To include the, the end user, to answer the, you know, let's try to answer the questions people have. Let's try to solve the problems that our people are having with their day. They're really not having medical problems. I mean, that's how doctors think about it. Really what they're having is they're having problems with their lives, function, contentment, well-being, peace. These are the things, the problems people have. I think that I can see where you're coming from when it comes to the idea of excellent care. And that exists currently in the healthcare system if you look for it. For example, should you be, heaven forbid, hit by a bus on the freeway today and you end up in an emergency department, you are going to get, no matter where you live in the developed world, world-class care. The team's going to be waiting. They're going to know what they need to do. They'll know exactly how to get you to the point where you are walking out of the building intact. We can agree that when it comes to an acute problem, healthcare has got it sorted, very good at fixing things. But when it comes to chronic care, and I'm not talking here about life-limiting care, I'm talking about things like irritable bowel syndrome and migraine, polycystic ovaries, Morton's neuroma. These are all common diagnoses which simply are not being managed well enough because the healthcare system is so busy fighting fires that it doesn't seem to get its act together when it comes to coordinating care. And it's almost regarded as nice to be polite 
when in fact what you're saying is that's the bulk of your customers. As you said, most people don't need invasive health care. They need to be allowed to cope with life and cope with life well. And these are the things that we have, which is the majority of us. Right. Where can we improve quality in that paradigm? You know, on the 30,000 foot level, there's just the imbalance in the financial incentives for prevention and public health are just outrageous. For a while, I thought with COVID, there, there may be a shift. But, you know, I'm, I'm not optimistic. But what I think, I have some hope that there's some energy now in reducing inequities. But anything that changes a power dynamic is really hard. And again, it's stuff that happens locally. It's, it's stuff that happens at home. It's in the office, in, in town, in your club, whatever. But um, I still think that more partnerships with the end users, realizing that these are people who are expert and paying them as experts and taking advantage of their expertise on a team with other experts and whether those experts have clinical knowledge, book learning, whatever, but that people who live with it know a ton. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and metal health. I want to go back to the Danny Van Leeuwen, who was the water meter reader. What you said there really resonated because you said that you went into healthcare because you enjoyed the interaction. Yeah. Now I'm betting that the Danny that I would have met those years ago would have been the kind of quality that we are now asking for today. We're asking for our healthcare practitioners to be interested, to make eye contact, to take the time to introduce themselves. You know, I'm a host. You know, I'm a host. I'm a guest in people's lives. And those aren't, you know, now that I've said that, maybe I'm mixing metaphors, but, but they're both true. You know, I'm a guest in people's lives and I'm a host to this system. They cross a threshold into a system. And I've been lucky enough to be born into a family that is multicultural and appreciates diversity for itself. I'm a child of Holocaust survivors. You would think that they would be afraid, that they would be cynical, 
And yes, they were. But but they were also we lived. <laughs> you know, we lived and we owe. And they came to this country. And so you know, I got brought up with you contribute. So it, you know, and it's fun. I mean, I'm a selfish guy. I do this stuff because it's fun. You know, it gives me something. I don't feel altruistic at all. I feel like I mean it's just a hoop this stuff lights my fire it clearly does but i'm not going to let you off the hook quite so quite so easily i want to talk about where we are what we stand for and what we what we're driving healthcare towards and we both agreed that really most people are not critically ill most people are living with conditions that are making life difficult let's put it yeah. that way yes and right. let's also agree that for most of us for and most of those situations we don't need new research that's going to find new medications or what what have you i mean that can happen but we already have within the armory of healthcare in 2022 enough that we can make a difference if we choose to and that the biggest difference that we can make is exactly what you went into healthcare for. And that was to make sure that that interaction in that private room between that health practitioner and that patient is such that the person who receives that healthcare feels that they have been seen and heard. That is what makes the difference. I agree with you. The financial incentives for health promotion and prevention, all the rest of it, absolutely at a macro level would help. But when the rubber hits the road, Danny, it was you, the Danny who went into this with saying, I don't want to read water meters. I want to talk to you. That's the Danny who we want back in the system. How do we do that? Well, I think that right now we have a crisis in, I was going to say a crisis in staffing, but that's not really what I mean. Our systems of recruitment and educating and supporting people who work in healthcare at whatever level, so whatever their credentials, whatever their role, is really sad and we make it difficult to to get into school uh, if it's school that's needed you know our whole attitude in this country towards immigration you know it's like who do who do all these people think is going to take care of them when they need it uh, we don't have enough people in this country right now in my work in in behavioral health, some of my career was spent in mental health and addiction treatment, where I learned to appreciate peer support. So, and and once I started, you know, seeing peer support, so it wasn't like I discovered anything. It's just that it was I didn't see it. But once I started to see it, you can see it everywhere, whether in the barbershop or the hairdresser 
or the public health department or in all these communities of people who are sort of diagnosis connected. So I think that, and then from those people who know about it and care about it, and then if we can support those people in getting jobs, like good jobs, because we need them and they need the jobs. This is another thing that we're really not that good at, which is really a shame. The absolutely most important care person in our country is the family caregiver. If all these family caregivers weren't around, we would be spending hundreds of billions of more dollars than we are now. And we do nothing to support family caregivers, which is criminal. When I was young, you know, I got to this honestly, you know, my mom was depressed and she had her challenges from her life. And there were periods where I took care of her where I was 10 or 12 and I would take care of her because she couldn't get out of bed in the morning. I hated it and I loved it. It was uh, was sort of my first taste of taking care of it, which was probably not the soundest way to do it, but there it was. So it wasn't like it was unfamiliar. Another thing I'll just throw in is there was no macho in our house, and it was okay to care. It wasn't like it wasn't a, a man thing to do, to care. Didn't, I didn't get brought up that way, which helped. The Journal of Health Design. Fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. I want to talk about two things you mentioned there. The barber shop and the family caregiver. Now, arguably, the barber shop is not the place you get the most sophisticated, scientific care. And yet, there are very few people who don't go to the same barber every single time. Is a place where people often disclose their deepest darkest secrets and feel most seen and most heard in the barber's chair that's number one and that's something I'd, I'd like to develop and the second thing you talk about is family caregivers and you're absolutely right the data across the world shows we had to pay for the care that spouses children neighbors give to their communities then we could we'd be bankrupt we, we simply we couldn't afford and these are again not the most qualified they don't go, they don't do randomized controlled trials they don't provide expensive medications and whatever else so here is a beautiful point of distinction between what matters in healthcare. there is physical mental and spiritual health and Mental health trumps physical health, and spiritual health trumps 
mental health. And what I mean by that is all of our resources are focused on physical health. But the barbershop is about spiritual health. Belonging, being connected, that is spiritual. That's as spiritual as I can imagine. Feeling connected, feeling heard. So I have a, you know, I have a very, multiple sclerosis is seriously annoying. But you know, I am a pathologically optimistic person. And like I said, I accept what is, and then I figure out what am I going to do now. And so I'm able to do a lot. And I feel like that's, that's what the barbershop represents to me. Now, I'm like you. I don't go to a barbershop, but I have other barbers. Those are really, really important. And dollar for dollar, pound for pound, ugh. That's why I think, I mean, I, I know when we say barbershops, we don't just mean barbershops. We mean church. We mean the hairdresser. We mean playing pickleball, whatever. Well, there's all sorts of barbershops. But it's similar with, with the caregiver in that pound for pound. I've done my share of caregiving. I've been care partner to three family members, end of life journey, grandmother, mother, and son. And... It is the right thing to do. It is gratifying and it is soul-sucking. It is hard to stay healthy and be a caregiver. And, and that is true whether you're paid or not. And that's whether you're a doctor or a mother or a father or a kid, you know, a child. But it's still draining. I mean, just, and, and we don't appreciate that. And we don't support that as a society, which is just sad. It's just so sad. But to your point, and where you were going at the start of this conversation, it is the communities that come together. It is neighborhoods. It is groups. It is these people who are saying, if you're not going to help us, we will help ourselves or we will drive the thing in the direction that we feel it should go. And that's the reason for your and my laughter. It is the reason that we haven't sunk into cynicism because we can see clearly, we can have faith in our friends, we can have faith in our neighbors, we can have faith in the people who will solve their problem even if the man or the woman on the white horse doesn't arrive anytime soon. When I see it, it adds fuel to my fire. It's just great. Oh, somebody's working on it. Somebody is figuring stuff out, you know, uh, and it's just, uh, it's invigorating. You know, so that's like the power of sharing all these stories of people who are I do some of that on my podcast. We're certainly on a self-destructive path as a society. There's no question to me. So I make no prediction about the future because I've never been any good at it. But 
I do know what I appreciate and what I'm grateful for and what I try to do. It's good enough. I think there is great hope for the future of healthcare. I don't think you are bad at making predictions. I think you have made a prediction already today, and that is to say it is people who are coming together that are making the difference. And for that, we're deeply grateful. Thank you so much, Danny, for spending the time with me today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please follow us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please like or share these conversations. That would be greatly appreciated. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.